Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's easy to feel overwhelmed in the face of global climate breakdown, so how might we develop the inner resolve to confront it? Full Ecology, collaboration between social cultural psychologist Mary Claire and longtime science writer Gary Ferguson suggests a path forward. Breaking the modern impulse to see humans as separate from nature, Claire and Ferguson encourage us to learn from the supremely methodical and highly improvisational natural systems that touch our lives. True change, they argue, begins with us stopping and questioning assumptions about our place in the world. And so we are going to talk about full ecology today with Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson. Uh, Mary Claire, welcome to the program. Do, do we have you there? Oh, not yet. Okay. Uh, Gary Ferguson, are you with us? I am with you, Tom. Good okay, to be, great. Good to be with you this morning. Thank right. you. Good, good, good to have you with us. I guess we're uh, we're still uh, uh, getting Mary Claire on the line here. Um, so, uh, Gary Ferguson, uh, give us a little bit about your background for those who don't remember. You've been on the program several times, and when we get Mary on, we'll have her give her background. Sure. Yes, uh, Tom. I've I've made a career out of basically studying and writing about conservation science, uh, the natural world, the environment, and not just learning about it from books. But I'm I'm very blessed to have put in at this point about thirty five thousand miles uh, of trail in various wild places uh, on the planet, and uh, tried to talk to as many knowledgeable people as I could along the way and uh, formed a lot of the uh, relationships and a lot of the ideas that uh, then when I met Mary about eight years ago, were able to kind of bear fruit in this full ecology project that we've got going on now. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, very good. Very good. Um, and I think we're still waiting to get uh, Mary on the line there. Um, you, you guys are in Bozeman, are you? Yes, we are, and it's a cloudy, snowy uh, Wednesday in Bozeman, but uh, such is the season, and we keep saying, hey, at least the snowpack's building, and that'll help with wildfires. Yes. <laughs> we had some snow in Logan uh, overnight. Uh, weird, rolling down the windows and, uh, you know, washing the cars the day before, and now now snow the next day with, with the high wind. <laughs> Try to keep up with that. Th- that's right. You know, that's when great. I think some of the... Some of those extremes are, are getting a little bit uh, more extreme, you know, as far as the, the wind energies and so forth. And I think climate change is going to make the roller coaster even a, a little steeper still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Mary Claire, I believe we have you on now. Hi, Tom. Hi. Yes. Good, good, good to have you with us. Um, Great are, are, to be here. It sounds a little echoey. You're not on speakerphone, are you? No, I can. Uh, let me get. I'm I'm on earphones, but I can change back to regular. Let me change. Yeah, yeah, yes, that was the. Whoops. Okay, changing back to. We'll we'll get it. Uh, we'll get it all figured out. Um, so uh, I wonder, Gary Ferguson, uh, how has COVID been with with you folks? Well, uh, we actually uh, have had a, a bit of a waltz with COVID. Uh, Mary came down with it last fall, and I, I, I'm quite sure I, I got it as well. We uh, made it through without any, any real serious side effects. But um, I think psychologically, to be honest with you, it's, it's been more of a challenge as it is for so many people. There's, there's something really quite unnatural for humans who are 
often called the most cooperative species on earth, and certainly they're among the most cooperative, to have to sort of, you know, walk down the street and, oh, here comes someone, I better cross to the other side because they don't have a mask on. And just the whole distancing thing, while technology has made it a lot less worse, it's it's still, uh, it's having an effect, I think, on Mary and me as well. It's, it's just, a, it's kind of an adult-brained effect where, where thinking is just not quite as... Uh, as sharp and fresh, and, and we, we miss our, our connections. We miss hugging the people we care about. Uh, Mary Claire, I think we have you back. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Isn't yeah, COVID no. weird? It is. It is very <laughs> weird. It is. And, and you're sounding a lot better there, so thank you for, for making that adjustment. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, yes. and the thing that I would say on the other side of that, on what um, Gary was just saying, this is so. I think all of us are pretty um, baffled by the way things have been rolling out here for the past year. The other side of that is that we're not taking time, our attention is not drawn to how well we're handling it, how adaptive we are, and how much we are learning along the way. We have not had the chance yet to slow down and take inventory of all the new skills that we're building And what Gary and I have also talked about is that given that climate change is going to bring some surprises around the corner, we're going to need all of these skills going forward. So, uh, Mary Claire, I want want to have you give a little bit of your background. We got a little bit from uh, from Gary. So, uh, years as a graduate professor of psychology and education, what sorts of things did did you teach and research? Yeah, I spent 30 years at the graduate school at Lewis and Clark College, and I prepared people to be, um, to provide services in mental health in, in education and in public administration. And so really what I was doing was training people to trust their improvisational and artistic skills as they move into the public sector together with a lot of good graduate level inf- information. So uh, tell us how uh, how you and uh, Gary met. Understand it was a, a trip to Montana. Uh, <laughs> how did that come about? Break. I yeah. was in Portland, Tom, and Portland is dismal at spring break. And so I had uh, contacted a friend of mine from college who I had promised for all of those decades that I would come and meet his family in Montana, and finally I was going to do it. And so I drove and drove and drove um, all one day through mountains and rain and snow and a full moon over Butte, which is a thing people should see. Um, Yeah, and uh, ended up in Montana with my friend, who is a guitarist. He's uh, quite an amazing guitarist, and Gary happens to play the blues harp. And they happened to be in a grown-up garage band. (laughs) And so (laughs) my friend Joe um, called up Gary and said, I got a buddy from college over. Would you come over for dinner? And Gary was in town and said, sure. Figured he was going to meet some guy. And it was me. Yeah, (laughs) very good. So Gary, a buddy from college, turned out to be Murray. It did. It did. And uh, I, I, honestly, from from almost the first moment, uh, this is not an exaggeration. We met. We we just kind of locked on each other. And I listened to Mary talk about her, you know, uh, work as a social scientist and a cultural psychologist, and all of these interesting things that were coming out through the field of neuroscience and so forth, as far as what she would say, human ecologies. Uh, uh, work on, and, I, I, and the whole time I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is really quite 
astonishing in in its parallel to what what's going on in the natural world the the, the qualities that make the natural world so filled with superpower and able to thrive even in the worst disruptions are are basically what Mary was describing seeing operating in in humans and so we we just really um started full ecology within the first 10 minutes of meeting i think um before we dive into it uh tell us the name of your garage band it was Arroyo, I should say it is, we have not officially disbanded, Arroyo Speedwagon. Arroyo Speedwagon, I love it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Um, so uh, you give some examples uh, in the book. I wonder if you could uh, talk about that. For example, uh, you know, bridging this world, which is not that far apart, right? You know, human ecology and uh, nature ecology, you might call it. So, Gary, apparently you would you would talk about uh, your studying Yellowstone wolf packs, uh, for example, and then yeah. and then uh, then Mary would yeah, would right. tell you about uh, uh, you know how cooperation is achieved among uh, Native Americans. So, Gary, go first. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, I might tell a story, uh, and I did spend an awful lot of time with the wolves for for a number of years when they were first reintroduced into Yellowstone in ninety five and ninety six. Uh, and and it was it was remarkable to actually watch um, you know rather than just read about uh, the the incredible social complexity of of those animals how they would help each other maybe if uh, say the alpha male in one case was uh, getting old enough that his teeth was uh, were very worn down he couldn't really rip open a hide anymore uh, on an elk kill then uh, another younger member would come in open it for him stand back let him feed um, lots and lots of cooperation going on as far as child care where every adult in the in the pack would take their turn playing with the pups and others would go out and get food of course lots of coordination when it came to hunting hours and hours of playing sliding down snowfields on their backs all of which is to say and and a lot of lo- kind of loose management too where the alpha usually the alpha female has a little bit more power than the alpha male but um still the the wolf uh, members could go off and do their own thing and then they might be called back when it was time to go um hunt so a lot of uh, complexity and a lot of, uh, of course, great success for, for wolves over the years, so much so that uh, a great many Mar- uh, Native American tribes claim to this day, including the Nez Perce, that they patterned their system of government simply on watching how wolves handled the challenges that came through their days. And Mary Claire, uh, a, a connection between this and uh, some of your studies on Native American tribes, Canadian First Nations, uh, bringing negotiations to, uh, according to you, uh, it's a pretty incredible, um, you know, cooperative uh, conclusion. Yes, uh, it's important for me to say I did, as a non-Indian person, have the great opportunity um, to work with the, the leadership of the, the tribes of the Pacific Northwest, and then um, briefly with the 72 tribes and First Nations of the Yukon River Valley. Um, My role there was to be of service to the tribal leadership, and so what I found myself most able to do was to take advantage of my platform and access in the graduate school to provide places for the leadership to have discussion and really to, in one case, guide the development of a curriculum based in indigenous ways of knowing. 
And so I was able to open up the power structure just a bit so that this long overdue access and conversation could occur for a while there during my career. So during that time, I was able to watch and see that in uh, indigenous communities, by and large, there is this tendency, that not tendency, this capacity, this um, orientation towards thinking first from connection. And so the question is not, what about me? The question is not, can I be the smartest person in the room? Oh, look at me. It's not that. The first orientation is, what in this conversation can be good for all of the people in my community and in all indigenous communities, and beyond that, on on the Yukon River, for specific example, for all of the beings and the living things, trees, animals, that live along, that live in that watershed. And so the orientation there is toward, you know, Gary was mentioning how the wolves take care of the older ones. I noticed just... It could be the most subtle tradition, but really important and powerful. Everywhere I went, when there were group meals, the first people to eat were the elders. Nobody thought about it. Nobody scolded about it. Nobody reminded about it. It was just the way it was. And then the elders were always thinking of the well-being of the whole, whether it was in their best interest or not. So those kinds of things are quite instructive when it comes to how we can reclaim our true nature as being more um, connected than separate. I'd like and, to, you know, yes, I'd go like ahead. I'd like to just jump in and, uh, sorry, and, and, and add to what Mary just said so well is it, it, it sort of makes sense if, if you come from a cultural tradition, and really all of us did if you go far back enough, where uh, you're spending a lot of time in the natural world and you're observing the natural world and, and, and you really do need to know how it works because your life depends on it. One of the things you would notice before any other quality I would suggest is, is what Mary's talking about, which is connection. So to return to the natural world now and really look at it with new eyes, new perspective, and kind of get these qualities and how we can express those qualities in our lives puts us uh, toward a more sustainable path. Um, there, there's just no question in my mind. Uh, before we go to break, I'd like to get one more example. There are a lot of examples here about these interconnections. Uh, this one really struck me. I just want to read a couple sentences from the book. Uh, the book is full ecology, and we have with us the authors, Gary Ferguson and Mary Claire. Um, so you say, um, Mary described her work with migrant families, in particular how building alliances between parents and school administrators led to increased success in children's learning. And Gary riffed in with a description of how adult elephants joined together to ready a young female for entering the role of matriarch for the herd. That's a very interesting interconnection. I don't know who wants to go first and, and describe a little more detail, their side of it. Well, in, in, the, in the case of the elephants, um, there, there is a matriarch, and usually that position is um, passed on from uh, a mother to her, her daughters over, over much time. And that matriarch also is responsible for kind of 
helping guide the herd when certain activities are underway, and and one would be um, when uh, one of the younger females is pregnant. So with the guidance of this matriarch, this wise older elephant, then the other females, and sometimes young males who are still in the herd hemp broken off on their own, will really start preparing things and taking care of those who are pregnant. And likewise, after the birth, there will be um, help from these um, uh, various uh, young females, and again, occasionally males as well, to make sure that they're protected, that they're fed, that they're, they're not falling into water holes. And so there, there is this huge cooperative effort for the sake of the group, because while each elephant is extremely impressive as far as her individual expression, that individuality is allowed or served or nourished by the group. And so it's natural in nature for the group to take a a, a very strong role because everybody's well-being depends on it. Mm. And Mary Claire, you work with the migrant families, uh, uh, understanding how alliances between parents and school administrators led to increased success in children's learning. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, before I, I respond specifically to that, Tom, I, I want to point out that, that it's tricky business speaking about um, the animal kingdom and then mapping it onto human beings, particularly in the two instances that we've talked in about up to now people who have been historically marginalized in the dominant culture increasingly of the globe, but certainly of our country. And so we've talked about the Native American folks, and we're now going to talk about the migrant folks. Um, the, the point that is important for listeners to consider is that we in the dominant group have separated ourselves so far from what works, from what works well, from what, what can be sustained, from what can can take very good care of our species. In fact, we've placed our species in a very dicey situation by defaulting to this illusion that we're separate from one another, should be frightened of one another, should control one another, and while we're at it, we should produce and we should profit. And so when we drew those analogies, Part of what we wanted to do was to dignify the capacity of any human community to return to thinking about the best of all beings first. Well, in the case of migrants, we've got another situation where, like the three of us, who I'm assuming, Tom, that and that may not be safe, uh, that you are, are a white American? Is that yes. Correct? Yeah, yes. Yes. White, okay, so white, the, white the and middle aged. The three of us yes. talking as, hmm. as white Americans hmm. are, you know, there's, we're awesome folks too. Everybody's awesome. There's no doubt about that. No question about that. And we happen to be in positions that might be the equivalent of being the administrator of a public school. And when there was the opportunity to use my liaison as a bridge between parents who were struggling to function in a culture that was not their own, but were learning it very, very quickly, but learning how to avoid pain rather than how to really be able to connect and advocate for their children. And that's the kind of bridge that can happen, that can draw this kind of -of out-of-balance power structure into more balance, bringing the administrator into alliance with the parents rather than superiority. That's a little difficult to describe in a brief time, but I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. 
Uh, let's take a break now. We'll come back with more. We're talking with uh, Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson. Their book is Full Ecology. Uh, they also have a website called Full Ecology, fullecology.com, and we'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. This week on This American Life, how do you feel looking at it? It scares me a little bit. When my coworker David Kestenbaum showed me the Universe Splitter app, I'll be honest, I thought it was BS. An app that fires a photon and creates an alternate universe? But David does have a PhD in physics. You literally just put your finger right up to the button and pulled it away in fear. All right, here it goes. Tune in for This American Life Saturday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about full ecology. It's the title of the book that's out. Also, website, fullecology.com. It's a collaboration between social cultural psychologist Mary Claire and longtime science writer Gary Ferguson. And uh, breaking the modern impulse to see humans as separate from nature, they encourage us to learn from the supremely methodical and highly improvisational natural systems that touch our lives. True change, they argue, begins with us stopping and questioning assumptions about our place uh, in the world. Uh, I want to lead toward early in this segment a definition of full ecology, but first, um, I want to have you each describe the photographs that are in the book. This is... Uh, uh, so, Mary Claire, it's you, uh, a black and white photograph, uh, you and your uh, sister Alicia, preschoolers, standing in water here and apparently discovering tadpoles. <laughs> we were at the base of the Yosemite granite, you know, m- majesty. Yes, looking down <laughs> at tadpoles. We, for by great luck... I was able to go to kindergarten. I went to kindergarten in Yosemite National Park, of all places. Who gets to do that? I did. (laughs) Yeah, my father was the chaplain there for a brief time. And so that meant that we actually lived there, and, you know, we just thought it was normal. (laughs) But that photo is from the just, the the precise moment that we were learning what tadpoles were and how they changed right before your eyes and so that's that's what that picture is we were (laughs) so cute and all in our little white underpants and our little white t-shirts and yeah and your mom says hey we can come back next week and you might be able to see tadpoles turn into frogs right yeah right Uh, it was magic it was amazing but it was true yeah uh, so, Gary Ferguson, uh, here's a photograph. I think this is your father, you with your brother, and you're you're also quite young. Tell us about this photograph. Yes, this is about uh, 45 miles west of South Bend, Indiana, where I grew up at Indiana Dunes, which has long since become actually part of the National Park Service. But my grandmother lived nearby, and so whenever we visited her, we would go to this beach on Lake Michigan, which was just 
absolutely astonishing to me. Um, the, the the waves, the you know, the fact that you couldn't see a horizon on the far side, the seagulls coming and going, the dunes shifting right before your eyes as the wind you know caught their crests and, and blew the sand over. Uh, I, I was just absolutely sure that I had landed in some sort of paradise, and, and in fact, so much so I should add a postscript to this, and that's that when I was. Well, about 13, during the summers, on Mondays, my brother and I would ride our bikes ridiculous distances. And I'm, I'm talking about a purple Sears Stingray for me. And so we would ride 45 miles one way and 45 miles back to South Bend in a single day just to go to those dunes and um, and just sit there and watch and, and have a kind of a 13-year-old uh, version of what I was so enamored of when I was three. I just want to read this paragraph from the book. We're talking about full ecology. You too like, likely have memories like this from your childhood, tucked away but still well within reach, indelible imprints of the wide world beyond your small body, you in the rain, the wind and the snow, wandering through the forest, walking into the waves, catching bugs in the yard, climbing a tree in the, the park, listening to the wind singing be- uh, between tall buildings. Hold these memories as you read on. They are calling cards to the wholeness of uh, human lifetime. So, Gary Ferguson, would, would we have this when we're young, I guess most of us, and then we lose it? Is that what happens? Well, we definitely, I think, pretty much all have it when we're young. I, it's, it's almost impossible, even if you grew up in, in the midst of a city, to not have an experience where a butterfly, a bee, a flower, something called to you and, and, and moved your heart. And I think part of it is, is is a way to sense that th- this is my home. This is where I belong. These are my fellow travelers, and and in that kind of lovely, naive childhood way, what happens? And Mary can speak to this more specifically. Is that we do live in a culture that has come to absolutely venerate what's called subject-object, or what Mary called separation thinking, and they got supercharged back about 500 years ago when modern science came online. We use subject-object thinking to all kinds of good ends with scientific method to kind of hold something in isolated form so we can determine some essential truth about it. But the fact of the matter is that became so popular and so overwhelming, especially in Western culture, that that idea has has gone from being a, a remarkably useful tool to some sort of uh, ultimate truth in our mind. So as we get older... Um, that kind of separation, that what about me that Mary mentioned earlier, is it is enforced and enforced and enforced, and 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 that really makes essentially a wall between the capacity and the potential of the human psyche that we were experiencing when we were kids, most of us, uh, and 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 the rest of the the human world, and so that's what full ecology is about: is trying to take down that that wall and heal that rift. So, Mar- yeah, Mary Claire, to talk more about uh, separation uh, thinking, and and then uh, uh, I guess the, the, you're fighting against that with full ecology, I believe. Well, I would say that the very good news is that none of us has ever completed that illusion. We've never been able to absolutely make it so that we are separate. We behave in that way, and it's very painful. And we come to behave in that way because, in part, because we're in these bodies. I mean, any of us can look at this body and go, okay, I stop where this skin stops. And then when we're very young and developing cognitively, we get to where 
at first, if everybody who's listening has been around an infant, if you think of the way an infant looks, and they they just have no sense that there's anybody or anything separate from them. They're the one who cries. They're the one who comforts them. They're the one who gets hungry. They're the one who gives them food. They don't make any. So it's kind of like they're born fully awakened gurus, but not quite. <laughs> because if you don't have the sense of self-identity, you can't come back and truly understand that. So all spiritual traditions of all time have been about pulling people back to the fullness, the wholeness of who they are, but being able to know it and have it rather than just to be it. So there's a point in human development early, early on where we start experiencing ourselves as separate. You play peekaboo with a child who's just about six months, and suddenly, oh, well, let's say you're shaking a rattle in front of their face, and you hide it behind beneath something, and they look over the edge for the first time because they get it in their head. That thing still exists. Well, that's when you get children struggling with separation anxiety, crying when their parents leave, because they know their parents still exist. So we have this, as human beings, wild experience of being separate from everything, but it's never, ever, ever been true. And the good news is that the connection is going nowhere. The earth and the natural world, and we are the natural world in these bodies, is connected inextricably all the time. We're in relationship, we're in kinship all the time. And so I'm not, remind me, Tom, the second part of your question. Uh, I believe that was it. Yeah, I, I think that was it. Okay. Um, uh, I, I want to move to, you You have some, in full ecology, you have some steps, All right, And I'll start with you, Mary Claire, on this one. Uh, the first step is to stop. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, that's that's really the key, because when you stop, I mean, just stop. Stop all thoughts, just even for a fragment of a second. When you stop, what you feel is the buzz and gentle presence of that connection. And once that stop happens, and it's not something we can do and it's one and done, it's stopping and building that kind of reminder to just stop from time to time because it's going to take a long time for us to turn our attention back to our natural thinking first from connection. But with the stopping, then it's possible to open up the inquiry into, well, what, how does this separate thinking serve me and not serve me? How can I understand it as a tool and not the truth. How can I see that I am in full kinship, and not just see, but feel? Remember that I'm in full kinship with everything all the time, whether I admit it to myself or not. And the stopping, the first step can help with that. Gary Ferguson, what would you say about this step? Stopping. I, I think, you know, Mary is, is the person who really introduced me to the necessity of that because I, I, I do tend to be more sort of action-oriented and want to be doing something. And when it comes to climate change, oh, my God, you know, don't tell me to stop. I can't pause. There's no time. This is a crisis. Uh, you know, all of that I have to own. But the fact of the matter is, until we pause in the manner that Mary suggested, 
it's very difficult to to really get the sense of reality that we're talking about. And, and we're not talking about inventing a perception. We're talking about aligning our perception with the way life on planet Earth really works. So being a bit of a, a science nerd, when I stop uh, and then move into the next stage, which is ask, what I'm likely to wonder about is, well, gosh, do Mary mentioned we tend to think we end at our skin. I'm going to ask that question. Do I really end at, at my skin? Well, gee, let's let's think about that. Um, I've got all these microbes on my skin that every day keep pathogens from getting into my body and making me sick. Um, I've got uh, the daylight setting my melatonin levels, which not only help us sleep, but now we are quite convinced, uh, the scientific community is quite convinced, prevents cancer. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to make... Um, nutrients available from the food I eat if I didn't have trillions of microbes who came to live with me after I got born, um, living in my gut, in my stomach. So if you really do start looking at things from just a kind of an inquisitive scientific way, uh, you'll, you'll find that there are this, we're living in a rhythm of exchange. It's, it's just a very porous world we live in, and you, you really can't hold a human being or anything else uh, out all by itself uh, and, and get any real semblance of reality from it. Mm. Uh, as you mentioned, the next step is ask. Uh, Gary Ferguson, um, what should we do there? Well, and that's uh, where I'm talking about going in and, and really asking about my most deeply held assumptions. That could be, as I just talked about, uh, am I really... Um, just an isolated being all by myself with a bunch of other isolated beings. Let's check that out. So that's one of the things I, I would ask. I would also take that opportunity to confront longstanding, maybe prejudices uh, and so forth that I grew up with as far as, well, uh, is, a, is a certain class of people um, somehow compromised more than me? Is there, is, is there really a difference? Can I can I, is this a zero-sum game we're living in, which is extremely antithetical to the way the natural world works? In other words, if I want to win and gain something, then you need to lose something. That's a very popular view in, in, in America especially, but uh, when you start exploring and examining how does life work on this planet, that's not it. And so those are the kinds of things that I would contemplate during the asking, again, all in service of, of a perceptual change, because I would suggest that until we uh, change our perception, we can, we can fight for the environment and for, against climate change. But the kind of nourishment, the kind of joy that, that that struggle brings, the kind of relief in discovering our kinship and connection, that really depends on a perception change. It's not just a 10-step program to, to save the environment. And for the long haul, we really need that perception change. Mary Claire, what would you say about this step of asking? Well, the inquiry is the thing that, especially, I'm always going to go back, Tom, to the, to the stop point, because what makes the asking work is having stopped. And as I say, just for a moment, then there can be asking of what's going on here. In fact, what is working and what is not working? The thing that we do in our pervasive culture is we get so focused 
on what's not working. We're so good at focusing on what's not working. We've got a 24-7 news feed to tell us and to keep us oriented towards everything that's not working. And we get so caught up in that that we forget to slow down, to stop, and notice that, I mean, here's a banal example, but if it weren't for gravity, we wouldn't be on the planet, held on the planet. We'd all be flying off into space, and we'd have other troubles. You know, if it weren't for air, if it weren't for water, if it weren't for all these beings and all this exquisite, intricate, brilliant interaction of life, humans wouldn't have the space, time, stage to whine and to get so fixated on our problems. That's not to say our problems aren't real. They are. But we're suggesting that with inquiry, asking after stopping, and it is after stopping and quieting, then we can begin to see what it is that's working and what it is that we can stand on and what it is out of humility we can learn to move forward way more effectively. Maybe we'll feel embarrassed for a while and maybe we will grieve for a while and maybe we need to. In fact, we know we do. And the better answers, the better proceed, the ways to proceed come from that. Mm-hmm. I think you just answered this question. I'll ask it anyway, uh, just there, uh, Mary Claire. Uh, so Gary mentioned, and I think a lot of people would have the reaction of, uh, say you're worried about uh, climate change, you know, these huge problems, global scale problems. And and you you would say, all right, Mary Claire, you're, you're telling me to stop, you're telling me to slow right. down. Right. <laughs> There's uh, something doesn't compute there. But I, I think you right before I asked that question, I think you were talking about that. The reason why we need to stop. Yeah. Well, what we tend to do is jump, as Gary was saying, jump into action. We desperately, we love this planet and we love our lives and we're going to jump into action to make it work well to solve these problems that are right in front of us. And of course, we have that impulse. And there's nothing wrong with that impulse except for we start answering, we continue to answer the wrong question. And we even come up with elaborate innovations to answer the wrong question or solve the problem that isn't really the problem at hand. And so we are suggesting in the fullness of ecology that, let's say, specifically around environmental well-being and addressing climate breakdown, it is vital that we attend to our ecologies that, that Gary and I call social ecologies, the ones between us and within us, if we wish to be of real consequence in addressing our, our mess that we've made, you know, so, so we keep moving to action before we slow down and before we say, maybe we made all of these innovations and big mistakes because we were moving too fast in the first place. We were thinking we were separate from all else. That's not working out real well. And we jump to action instead of really paying attention to what is the problem after all, and not just that, what do we have that's working that we can draw on? Let's take another break. We'll come back. I'll have a last segment with uh, Gary Ferguson and Mary, uh, Mary Claire. 
And uh, the book is Full Ecology. You can also find them at the website, fullecology.com. We'll have more following this. What is climate change? How is it affecting our lives? And what can we do about it? We'll connect the dots from energy to extreme weather, public health, the economy, agriculture, and more. Catch Climate Connections weekday mornings at 549 and 849 on Morning Edition and afternoons at 348 during All Things Considered, here on Utah Public Radio. On the next Living on Earth, a trip off the beaten path to the Sky Islands of Arizona. In this region, it's the place where jaguars and black bears meet. It's the place where you have northern birds like sandhill cranes and birds from the tropics like military macaws. I'm Steve Kerwood. Ideas about public lands to visit this summer next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Next up at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson. They're authors of the new book, Full Ecology. You can also find them at the website, fullecology.com. So I want to start uh, this segment with uh, the dedication uh, to the book. Uh, Mary Claire and Gary Ferguson, you dedicate the book to our grandmothers, Mary and Etta, and for that inspiring grandmother bear of the Northern Rockies, Grizzly number 399. Gary Ferguson, tell me about Grizzly number 399. Oh, what a legendary bear she is. Uh, she's been written off uh, many times, uh, well into her 20s now, which is getting quite old, and yet still managing to emerge on in many springs with cubs. In fact, uh, about a year or so ago, she emerged with four cubs, which is really quite astonishing, and she just continues to defy all expectation and to thrive, even through very uh, scary situations. Last year, she made a really kind of hair-raising, for those of us watching, trek down south through a lot of community uh, areas near Jackson, Wyoming, and subdivisions and agricultural areas, and um, whenever a wild animal, wolf or grizzly, gets uh, in, into that situation, there's always an, uh, a chance of, of conflict. But anyway, we we admire uh, 399 because she just keeps living in the most grizzly way. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that as a huge compliment uh, every, every single year. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I want to talk about the, the third step, ACT. Um, so stop, ask, act. We're talking about full ecology. And uh, I love some of the examples uh, in, in the book. Uh, it's, you know, simple. Uh, let me just read this. One day a week for the past three years, Robert, a computer programmer in Portland, Oregon, has used part of his lunch hour to pick up trash from one of his favorite woodland walks in Washington Park. Uh, you quote him, There's not much litter out there, really. And to be honest, it's not so much about slave saving the planet. It's just my way to thank a piece of the forest. Uh, so, Mary Claire, that's a very interesting example. And, and several others that, that you give here are, you know, pretty simple actions. Yeah, one of the actions, I guess, in keeping with the first two steps um, is it's to go outside if you're not out much or even just to look outside and look to the top of a tree especially if you're not doing well, especially if you're depressed or worried or just 
muddled somehow. Go outside or even stand inside if it's bad weather and look to the top of a tree and then maybe to the top of another tree. And you know, I learned this trick from my fairy godmother in Northeast Texas when I was in college. She was one of the most brilliant. She was a professor, but also just a dear, dear person. And she said, look to the tops of trees. Well, the trees were really short up there, but it still made a difference. When we lift our eyes up, it turns out that my mentor, Mamie Porter, was ahead of her time. We now know from neuropsychology that when we lift our eyes, we lift our spirits. And the reason I use that as a very simple example of action is that it puts us back in these bodies back in these lives, back in a a slightly slowed down place from which we can make better decisions. And one of those sets, one mm, characteristic of those kind of decisions is that they have jumped off the I need to save the world train and instead are doing what they can, (coughs) excuse me, locally around them We do, when each of us does what we can around us, think of that. Each of us is overlapping circles with everybody else. And when we do really caring for ourselves and caring for the planet and caring for one another, every person's doing that, we'd be in a lot better shape. So those are some of the very simple actions. Gary Ferguson, uh, what would you say about ACT? Well, you know... uh... Tom, I've, I've seen some environmental writers lately <laughs> making the point that, hey, forget about your personal recycling. It, it, it doesn't matter. Forget about, you know, what, whatever little small thing you're doing to turn the temperature down two degrees in your house. Um, we need to act bigger. We need to uh, strike this climate change problem on a much grander scale and, and deal with corporate polluters and so forth. Yes, I agree, we do need to deal with corporate polluters. But the fact of the matter is, I think what Mary said is true. Not only is there an overlapping influence from the smallest acts, but the small acts, like Robert picking up trash as a way to thank this particular land, brings him into connection. And anytime any of us do something to that effect, plant a, a tiny garden, or whatever it is we want to do, plant a tree to, to take up carbon, it's not so much about the quantity of carbon that tree takes up, although it will take up a little bit. It's really about getting in that kind of position that's going to be able to carry us forward over the long haul. Climate change is not going to go away. It's going to be a challenge for decades to come. So let's get back to what the natural world offers us, and that's that sense of place and kinship and connection. And from that, I think we do gain a better chance of having the energy and the outlook and the contentment and the kinship necessary to kind of rally for the for the bigger steps that need to be done uh, in the decades to come. We just have about uh, two minutes left in the conversation. Uh, I'll just mention the last uh, step is Inspire. Um, so, mm-hmm. Mary Claire, to 30 seconds, uh, you can talk about Inspire or anything else you'd like to talk about, uh, Full Ecology. Well, you know, the thing that's coming to mind is kindness and that humans are wired for kindness, that evolutionary biologists have shown us that, you know, as Gary was saying early on, because we are cooperative, because we have this capacity, intuition, instinct for kindness, we do well. Inspiration comes from acts 
of kindness, acts of pure human nature. We can be inspired by a mountain, and that's the mountain's nature. But acts of pure human nature, you know when you're around somebody who's just inspiring. You know how you feel. You calm down, and you're in, you just go, wow, I want some of that. So it's not about preaching. It's about just doing and living from the truth of who you are. Gary Ferguson will give you the last word. We're just about out of time, but uh, 30 seconds or so. And uh, before I uh, have you uh, talk, I just want to mention, um, if you go to foleycology.com, you can see a link there. Uh, you're invited to join uh, Gary Ferguson and Mar- Mary Claire's Walk in the Wild virtual launch on Earth Day. So, uh, Gary, what's your big takeaway from, from Foleycology? Well, uh, back to my science nerd self, I would just say it's really fascinating to see how much evolutionary uh, science now is acknowledging that life has pretty much gotten as successful and complex as it has from lots of disruptions rolling through and then a sort of communal cooperative response in the wake of those disruptions to make the, the life system, the ecosystem, if you will, more complicated, but also more successful and resilient than it was before. That's where we stand right now. Uh, we do have a huge disruption going on, much of it of our own making, and we have an opportunity to come together uh, and and really pull the best of us, and the best of us is only accessible when we do stand together. We've been talking about the new book, Full Ecology. There's also a website, fullecology.com. Uh, so we've been talking with uh, the authors, uh, Mary Claire. Mary Claire, welcome, uh, or thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom, so much for spending this time with us. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, Gary Ferguson, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. We'll go out now with our regular Friday, uh, Wednesday feature, Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. A map of the United States is a familiar sight in Utah's classrooms. But if we had listened to one of America's most visionary scientists more than 100 years ago, Utah's state borders would look totally different today. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Maps shape how we see our world. Perhaps no one knew this as well as John Wesley Powell, a late 19th century scientist who was one of the first to survey the American West. Powell's famous expeditions through America's canyons and rivers helped create the U.S. Geological Survey in 1879. As director, he created a nationwide topographic mapping project that is still used by federal agencies today. Despite his clear expertise about the land, Powell's greatest proposal for the American West was rejected. The 1862 Homestead Act provided 160 acres of land to Americans wanting to settle the frontier, but land west of the 100th meridian is significantly more arid than in the east. Powell knew there would be problems with access to irrigable land. He proposed that the West be settled within natural watershed boundaries to maximize the use of rainfall as it collected in mountains and ran downstream. Central to his vision was his hydrographic map, where the square borders of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and Nevada 
were broken up into a vibrant jigsaw puzzle of proposed watershed districts. When he presented his colorful map to Congress in 1890, Powell hoped to convince them that these districts provided the best way to avoid conflict over water ownership. He envisioned a society where catchment basins were protected by the government to ensure every drop was used and millions of farmers could thrive as a result. Powell's colorful watershed district map also gives a new way of seeing the West, not by its natural topographic features or arbitrary political borders, but through the waterways that naturally shape it. Powell's map confronted U.S. senators with a truth they refused to admit, that the West was simply too dry to sustainably uphold the economic interests of exploitative developers. With some senators serving those businesses, many outright rejected Powell's ideas about water. As years of legal disputes and droughts plague the West, is time proving that Powell was right? Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. This is Carrie Bringhurst, one of the station managers at Utah Public Radio. I wanted to thank Carol Bold for sharing her talents with us as the Spring 2021 Art Mug Contest winner. If you missed our Spring Member Drive and would still like to pick up our Spring Member Drive Art Mug, it's not too late. You can always pick one up by donating at upr.org. Your support helps guarantee that programs like Morning Edition, Access Utah, and All Things Considered will continue. Thank you again. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.